You're listening to Code Switch from NPR. I'm Shireen Marisol Meraji. Remember me? I helped create this podcast. I hosted it for a minute. And I'm back because this episode is all about one of my obsessions, language. Specifically, language loss. And what's lost in translation when you can't communicate fluently in your parents' first language. I've talked a lot about the power of language on Code Switch, how language can both unite and divide. I don't hate the term POC. I think it's fine. It's just an excuse for people to not want to say Black people. How language is used to demonize and dehumanize certain communities. The major one was immigrants as animals. They were, they were pack animals, they were coyotes, they were pollos. How reclaiming your language can bring you closer to who you are and where you come from. I had this big, grand idea that one day when I had children, that Hawaiian would be their first language. That was one of my absolute favorite Code Switch episodes. It was about a small group of Native Hawaiians who took it upon themselves to revitalize their language while they were still learning how to speak it. It was such an honor to report that story and to co-host this show for nearly six years. And for those of you who don't know, I left Code Switch because I got the opportunity of a lifetime to be a professor at UC Berkeley's Graduate School of Journalism. And today, the stories you're going to hear were made by two recent graduates of Berkeley's J School. One of those stories digs into why one family made a difficult and heart-wrenching decision not to speak their heritage language, Japanese. I thought that being bilingual, is, uh, it could be great a gift. But before we get into that, the first story you're going to hear is also about family relationships and language, but a different family, a different language, and a different set of questions. Like this one. How do you talk about your gender identity in a language you can't speak that well? A language where the pronouns for he and she sound the same. A brief warning for listeners, there is a reference to suicide in this piece. And to tell it, I'm turning things over to Elena Neal Sachs. Emmett Chen Ran grew up in the U.S., and his parents grew up in China. But it wasn't until he was in his teens that he realized exactly what that might mean. I was reading this thing one time about how, like, immigrants are sort of stuck in the cultural values of the time period of their home country when they left. And that when they leave their home country, like, even if the home country becomes more progressive in their absence, they, in the new country, still think that their home country is the way that they left it. Emmett's 24 years old now, and he lives in San Francisco. He was actually born in China, but his family moved to New York when he was five. I, I remember I watched like some Chinese dramas with my mom when I was in elementary school, and a lot of our shared experiences were over food. Food and TV were among the things that Emmett and his parents bonded over, but there were, and still are, a lot of reasons they don't see eye to eye. Part of the distance between them has to do with a language barrier. Emmett was so young when they moved to the U.S., and he never went to Chinese school, never got a formal Chinese language education. I don't think I've ever been prepared my entire life to, like, give a soliloquy about my feelings in Chinese because so much of my Chinese is utility-based, like things like ordering food at a restaurant or 
things like, I don't know, talking about everyday practical logistics. Although Emmett was never friends with his parents, for the first several years of his life, he and his mom spent almost all their time together. I remember there was like, during a summer, probably around second grade, we would spend every day just like watching cartoons, playing badminton outside. But then she started working and also around that time, my first brother was born and he's special needs. So I think a lot of the dynamic shifted in terms of like taking care of him. So Emmett's mom got a lot busier and then Emmett's dad started his own law firm and his mom, who's also a lawyer, quit her job to work there. So that meant Emmett spent even less time with his parents. Even though they would go to work at like nine or 10, they usually wouldn't come back to like eight or nine. And then there's his parents' religious beliefs. That widened the distance between Emmett and his parents too. I think they were always sort of like, like by the book for a long time. And then um, when they came to the US, they got into Christianity and became even more by the books. Throughout middle school, they would send Emmett to summer Bible camp. And there was um, someone there who identified as a girl at the time, who was now non-binary, and they were like super butch. And I remember just having this massive crush on them. But I think they were just like super sure of themselves and like super confident in being like masculine. And at the time I was like, I don't know if I want to be them or like date them or I like, I don't know. (laughs) It's like the quintessential queer experience, a Bible camp crush. So anyway, in high school, Emmett started to dress more masculine. He would stroll through the halls in basketball shorts and sleeveless tanks. Athleisure, I think, was my picture of like what uh, masculine women should dress like. During high school, he started seriously considering hormone therapy. But since he was only 17, he thought he needed his parents to sign off. And I've never been good at talking to my parents about emotions. And like this was sort of peak uh, uncomfortable conversation. So I think I was like literally trembling the entire time. But not because I was like scared to tell them, but because just the act of voicing these things was so uncomfortable for me. I had pulled up the Google translation of transgender in Chinese just so I could ground like that term in their cultural understanding of what it was. As he prepared to come out to his parents, Emmett was grappling with a lot. But a particular challenge was deciding which language to use. He wanted to say everything in Chinese, his parents' native language. But he wasn't sure he could find the right words. So ultimately, he went with English. It was a fall night during his senior year of high school when Emmett decided to have the conversation. He had been thinking about it for years. He was shaking. When he got up to go find his parents, every detail of his surroundings started coming into sharp focus. And I told them, like, I've been thinking about this for a number of years now, and I'm pretty sure I'm transgender and I want to be a man. Um, And I know that is, like, not even the language that we use to talk about it nowadays, but to just sort of put it in terms of their understanding. And for dramatic effect, I was sort of like, but I might kill myself if I don't transition. (laughs) Because I think, like, it wasn't 
too much of a stretch to think like I, my quality of life definitely would have been like severely impacted if I wasn't allowed to transition. And in that conversation with my parents though, I definitely didn't bring up a lot of this doubt that I had because I wanted them to take me seriously and to not try to s delay things or stand in my way. Emmett still remembers vividly the way his parents responded when he told them he's trans. His mom cried, he avoided making eye contact with them, his dad? My dad was making this face that he does whenever any mention of, like, unchristian things come up. Like, he would always make this face when I read, like, the Harry Potter books, even. He was like, it's witchcraft and sorcery and all the satanic things that, like, the Bible says to not engage in. So it didn't go great, but over time, his parents mellowed out. Sort of. Instead of tears and furrowed brows, Emmett got used to just not knowing what his parents were thinking when it came to his gender. I've honestly never gone in-depth with, like, explaining why I think I'm trans beyond that initial coming out talk, because I don't really have the words for it. And by, like, not having the words, I feel like I could explain it in English, but I don't want to because... I don't think they would pick up on like all the nuance of what I'm saying because most of what they use English for is like the workplace. About a year after that first conversation with his parents, Emmett was still nervous about how they'd identify him in public. When it came time to move into his dorm room at Yale, he tried to keep them from meeting people. He was afraid they'd misgender him. I think the other parents probably chalk that up to like them being not native English speakers. And my parents also habitually slip up with pronouns, even with people that are like cis and who are their friends and stuff when they speak in English about them. So I remember before move-in day in my head, I was like, if they do slip up and call me she and someone asks about it, I'll just be like, they're just bad at English. <laughs> And I was like, I, I know I'd be sort of problematically throwing them under the bus as immigrants, but it's life or death here. <laughs> it's been six years since college move-in day. Emmett's now a product manager, and a lot has changed. But he still sits with one question. Do his parents still view him as their daughter? When they talk about him in Chinese, since the pronouns for he and she sound the same, he can't tell if they're misgendering him. And in English, they misgender him all the time. But is that because English isn't their first language? Or is it because they don't see him as their son? I know last time we talked, you were like, yeah, you guys can talk to my mom. I don't want to <laughs> talk to my mom. Is that still... Yeah, that's still yeah, the case. Cool. Okay. So we called up Emma's mom, Yanfei Ran. When we talked to Yanfei, she referred to Emmett by his initials, E-C-R, pronounced as Ecker. And throughout our interview, Yanfei never said Emmett. During our conversation with her, she would go back and forth between using he, him, and she, her pronouns to refer to Emmett. And when we asked her about that, Yanfei said she mostly mixes up Emmett's pronouns because of those linguistic differences between Chinese and English. Uh, yeah, I think the language, it's Chinese just like the Japanese. So when we mention he, she, we will use ta as the same pronunciation. So there's no distinguishing between 
he or she. We we just use ta. But there's another reason that Yanfei isn't completely comfortable with Emmett's transition. When you become a father or mother, you will know your parents always want you to get the best. And your parents always want you to be healthy, happy. Emmett told us that he suspected his physical health was one of his mom's biggest fears about him transitioning, that she was hyper-focused on the possible side effects from hormone therapy and surgery. I think it's the health is the most uh, concern for me. Even now, I really think he's just like destroying himself gradually. She never talked about his mental health, though, what Emmett described as the impact to his quality of life if he hadn't been able to transition. However, he is my child. So even sometimes when I saw him, I still feel lost. I still feel painful in my heart. However, gradually, I think I'm gradually like accepting him as him, not her anymore. As a mother, again, you just always want your child to be happy and to be supportive. So even we don't support her idea, however, this family is always like just tolerate her or him and always welcome him home. And this is home and I'm his mother forever. That's the most important thing. After talking to his mom, we had one more question we wanted to ask Emmett. What would his ideal relationship with his parents look like? Ideally, I think they would be like my friends in that I could confide both my triumphs and my doubts about like trans-related things to them because I still do think that if I voice any doubts or any sort of like negative thoughts about being trans to them, they would see it as confirmation bias of like, see, you shouldn't be trans. And so I wish ideally that I would be able to have this like multifaceted relationship about being trans with them without them taking it as like evidence of their beliefs being supported. I think I'm at a point in my life where I like all of society basically sees me as my gender. And so it doesn't really matter to me if they misgender me in their heads as long as I don't feel like the ramifications of that in our interactions. And so when my mom does things like that, it's sort of like a cherry on top in terms of like her affirming my gender, but I don't need her to when I'm home. That was Elena Neal Sachs. Elena's a narrative writer and audio producer from Davis, California. She co-reported that last piece with Isabella Bloom. And we're going to be hearing from Izzy after the break. She's going to share a different family story about language. This one about why her mother's dream to teach her and her brother Japanese fell apart. Stay with us. 
Support for NPR is brought to you by REI, your local outdoor co-op. If you're looking for the outdoors, look no further than outside your door. Because the great out there is right out there. Whether you're walking the dog, trekking a thru-hike, or lying on a picnic blanket in between, the great out there isn't a distance, but a decision. To enjoy the outdoors just outside your door, join the co-op. REI. Better is out there. Shireen, just Shireen, code switch. Izzy Bloom got used to telling people the same story when they asked if she could speak her heritage language, Japanese. She'd say she isn't as good as she would like to be because her mom didn't teach her older brother. And because he wasn't taught Japanese, neither was she. Simple enough. But the real story is much more complicated. Here's Izzy. My parents, Ira and Yasuko Bloom, met in Japan in 1986 in Okayama. My mom was working as a fashion designer, and my dad, who's American, was living there for a few years teaching English. Uh, it was, uh, was it New Year's Eve or it was a couple days before New Year's, right? It was a New Year's party. It was a New Year's party, mm-hmm. right? I was with my friend Tokumori, and uh, we were sitting down at this yakitoria, and Tokusan said, are you going to go talk to her? And I said, I don't know, she's really pretty. And he said, if you don't go talk to her, I'll go talk to her. And so he started to stand up. I put my hand on his knee and I said, no, I'll go. He walked over to her table and introduced himself. He was loud. <laughs> no shy. And, you know, when, when he started talking to him, he was funny. He tried to make a joke. Just three months later, my parents were engaged. And five months after that, they got married and moved to the United States. You know, I wanted to have a different challenge for my life. And uh, it was not a difficult decision for me to come to the United States. I can't imagine myself meeting someone and then just months later marrying them and moving across the world to a country where I barely speak the language. But for my mom, it's kind of fitting. I've always known her to be determined and purposeful. Someone who knows what she wants. Not long after she and my dad moved to the U.S., they started a women's clothing line in California. Once their business was steady, they bought a house, and my mom got pregnant with my brother Max. My parents love telling stories about how my older brother Max was the easiest baby. He would go up to anybody and just raise his arms up and they would to be picked up. And people, complete strangers, would pick him up and they would make a big fuss over him. He was a really cute kid. Yeah, that's what I remember. You when you're raising a baby, every moment is this is the best time. How far is it gonna go the best time? Today, my mom speaks English really well as you can hear. But this is after living in the U.S. for 35 years. Back then, when Max was born... I worry about my kids doesn't understand who I am, what I really meant. Not only linguistically, it's just as a, as a person. What do you mean by I that? I did worry about if, I, if, you, if my kids doesn't understand the Japanese, maybe never get really know me. So my mom spoke to Max exclusively in Japanese. 
When he was a newborn, she loved carrying Max and singing Japanese lullabies to him. I carrying around and walking around the house and very calm, and I singing, uh, singing you know, the song, and I, he sleeps. But Max wasn't really picking up Japanese or English, which my dad was speaking to him. We didn't had never had a baby before, so we didn't really know how profound his developmental delay was. I mean, not only that, but his his doctor told us that he was fine. And uh, the developmental delay, he wasn't concerned about. So we weren't concerned about it. I I was. Well, yeah. I was always, was always concerned. Always. Yeah, because he never hit his milestones. Like I other kids. read every single book. I, even though I, I remember I was searching that milestone like Max had. And I didn't know how severe his uh, uh, development, but... Um, I knew something wrong. Mm-hmm. According to my mom, Max never actually crawled. He didn't sit up until he was six months old. And he didn't say his first word until he was two years old. Once my mom started taking Max to daycare, the difference between him and other kids his age was so glaringly obvious. She insisted on getting Max genetically tested. Max was three years old when he was diagnosed with Prader-Willi syndrome, or PWS. It's a rare genetic disorder. At the time, in 1997, everything my mom read about it would only heighten her concern. The most distinct condition for people with PWS is hyperphagia, an unrelenting hunger and compulsive urge to consume food. Basically, the trigger in most of our brains that tells us we've had enough food is missing in my brother. So he'll rummage in garbage cans and steal the cat's food and needs constant supervision. Along with a lack of impulse control, Max has learning disabilities and physical challenges, too. Hi, my name's Max Bloom. I'm 27 years old. Can you tell me what you're doing? I'm playing my Pac-Man thing. Oh, Pac-Man arcade game. I'm at my brother's care home in Northern California. It's like a group home for adults, specifically for people with PWS, because he needs a lot of support and 24-7 supervision. Um, Polly syndrome is a syndrome where you, where you never feel full. You um, have um, anger problems. You, ha- you have trouble keeping, keeping up with your hygiene. And, um, and that's about it. We're in his room, which he shares with one other person. Before I came over, he made his bed and lined up his action figures on the windowsill. Can you describe to me what you're wearing right now? <laughs> I'm wearing a fluorescent shirt with birds and um, camouflage pants. Max loves mixing and matching colors and patterns. And I have my um, um, flame print shoes that I got from my girlfriend. I have my necklaces that I made with my girlfriend. Can you count how many bracelets and how many necklaces you're wearing right now? Yes, I'm count. I have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, eighteen, nineteen, twenty, twenty-one, twenty-two, twenty-three,
10, 10, 10, 10 um, bracelets, non-cleaning watch, and then um, three, three necklaces. I know it's a little extreme, but that's all I like. That's all I like dressing. That's all I like looking. What does it feel like for you to have Prada Willie syndrome? It feels like for me that um, that it's just hard. To, it's just hard to do things and stuff. It's it's hard to fit in, and it's hard to um um to have a regular life. That's that's basically what it is. Like 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 you don't get like have, have like a full time job. You don't get to drive. You don't get to um do that type of stuff. What do you think is like the hardest part of having Prada Willie syndrome? People understanding you, people understanding um how how you feel. Just communication wise, it's the hardest. After he was diagnosed, Max's pediatrician told our parents they should stop talking to him in Japanese. His language development at this point was so delayed that our parents feared. If he didn't get a grasp on English soon, he'd face even more difficulties in school. He wouldn't be able to socialize with other kids. He'd have a harder time learning. We were ready to go along with anything to get him to start talking. And I've kind of always believed that this was the reason I wasn't raised bilingual. When people ask me if I know any Japanese, which happens all the time, this is the story I tell. When my brother was diagnosed, his doctors told our parents not to raise him in a bilingual household. And so when I was born five years after Max, it was just too complicated for my mom to only speak to one child in Japanese. But for my mom, this was a huge loss. Because like she said, it was really important for her children to truly know her. To know the person she is in Japanese. Using my own language is, even the way I think, way I express is different. When I go back to Japan still, I always feel ah, relaxed because of I don't need to listen to it. You're saying like there's a part of your personality or there's a part of the way you think that doesn't come out in English. Mm. Mm. Maybe maybe come up a little differently. I wanted to know if the recommendations my parents had gotten from Max's doctors had any scientific validity. Is it detrimental to raise a child with Prader-Willi syndrome in a bilingual household? The main focus of our study was to uh, analyze the effects of bilingualism among the Prader-Willi syndrome population. That's Estela Garcia Alcaraz. She's an assistant professor at the University of Balearic Islands in Spain. And in February 2021, she published her dissertation about PWS and bilingualism. It's the only study I could find focusing on the rare syndrome my brother has. We consistently don't find evidences of a negative effect of bilingualism. Here's Juana Liceras. She's the supervising professor for Garcia Alcaraz's study. And it doesn't interfere with uh, communication, thinking, or work. Liceras is a linguist and has a son with PWS. His name is Ivo. By the time Ivo was diagnosed, at 11 years old, he was already bilingual. Liceras raised him to speak both English and Spanish. English because they live in Canada, and Spanish because that's Ivo's heritage language. Other advantage is that uh, my son was not deprived of because he was bilingual. He could go to Spain, he could talk to all our friends, to his family there, and he felt proud of it. 
Liseras pointed out to me that bilingualism may be even more beneficial when it's your heritage language. Because just like in my case, it affects the way the rest of the family communicates, the way culture is passed down. Do you think that your family dynamic would have been different if Ivo didn't learn his heritage language? I think so. His brother would not have continued with Spanish and would not have been a a bilingual. It is so important in the case of the heritage language, when it is the family and the house, that that should be encouraged. Along with talking to Garcia Alcaraz and Liseras, I read lots of studies and research papers about the effect of multilingualism on kids with autism or Down syndrome, and again and again it was the same result. I had always kind of accepted this idea that Max's doctors were right. I guess intuitively it made sense to me that if your child's language development is delayed, then yeah, learning two languages is probably more confusing and you should just cut back to one. But that's just not the case. The U.S. situation is that you really need to prove yourself with English before your multilingualism is seen as an asset. That's Betty Yu. I'm a professor in the Speech, Language, and Hearing Sciences Department at San Francisco State University. She says bilingualism is perceived as good or bad depending on who you are. If you're in a privileged situation or your access to English is really solid, then knowing more languages is viewed as an advantage. It's tied up a lot with views on immigration, on race. Language can't be divorced from those things. You know, bilingualism is um, often seen as a barrier to the achievement of a norm. So when we're talking about disability, disability as something that's seen as abnormal, those two things sort of mutually enforce each other. The research is spreading about the benefits of speaking more than one language for all of us, neurodivergent or not. But Betty Yu still hears from parents who are advised not to raise children with developmental disabilities in a bilingual household. Do you wish that you learned Japanese growing up? Yes, it would make life a lot, life a lot easier to, to, to understand my mom, my dad, and my and second, 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 second talk to my um, family on, uh, in Japan. But why is that important to you? It's important to me because I want to be able to fit in there. Do you think you definitely could have learned Japanese? Definitely, yeah. If my mom, if my mom, if my mom could have, my mom kept talking to me, yeah. I shared everything I'd found out with our mom, all this new research, and I really expected her to say, if she could do it all over again, she'd raise Max bilingual. You know, what made uh, his life different at this point? I don't know if his bilingual made him so different. Are you mad at any of those doctors, or are you resentful? No, I don't. I don't. I don't. I don't mad. It because it was the final is my decisions. I I made the decisions. Do you blame yourself? Hmm. Hmm. I could do better. How? To stay in a bilingual. You could have fought harder. You think? You don't need to fight with it because I'm the one doing the bilingual. They suggest I don't think it's no good idea. That's what the, their, their opinions. So I take opinions and I 
make actions. So it's my decision. When we talked earlier, you had said that one of your biggest fears about not raising Max bilingual and then me is that your children wouldn't understand you. Hmm. But then you said that that didn't happen. Hmm. No, it didn't happen. Why? <gasps> Why? To me, to be the best parents is how to listen to what your kids says rather than pushing my words to the children. But what makes you think that me and Max understand you? Mm. Because we, we talk. We talk to each other, even in English. And I, I'm not 100% Japanese anymore. I don't know who am I. I'm, am I. Am I American? Am I Japanese? Where's my own country? I'm, when I go to Japan, I'm a little bit stranger. Of course, when I'm in the United States, I'm a little bit stranger. And that's what I am. That was Izzy Bloom. Izzy's an audio producer in Berkeley, California. I'm sure there's many of you out there thinking right now about all the languages you speak or don't speak and the reasons why or why not. My mom's first language is Spanish. My dad's is Persian or Farsi. And mine? Well, my mom says my first words were in her language, Spanish. But that didn't last long. Because by the time I was in kindergarten, I was responding to everyone who spoke to me in Spanish in English. Unfortunately, I don't have any childhood connection to Persian. My father never spoke it at home, and it's something that he deeply regrets. Over the years, I've tried to learn more Spanish. I'll promise to only speak Spanish with my Puerto Rican family, but it never takes long before someone gets frustrated and reverts back to English. Usually it's me. I'm embarrassed. They're embarrassed for me. And the shame cycle continues. I desperately want to find proficiency in at least one of my heritage languages before I die. And I know I'm not alone. It's really hard not to feel like a fake when you're claiming an identity and you can't fluently communicate in the language associated with that identity. And now I face a brutal reality in just one generation my multicultural, multilingual family will have lost both of its heritage languages. And that's something that keeps me up at night. But the thought of stopping that from happening is even more daunting. But I'm trying, once again, to learn Spanish. And this time, I asked for help from experts in heritage language learning and people who are also trying to learn their heritage languages, like me. And you can find that on NPR's Life Kit podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. And that's our show. We want to hear from you, so email us at codeswitch at npr.org. Follow us on Twitter and IG. We're at NPR Codeswitch. And subscribe to the newsletter by going to newsletters.npr.org. 
This episode was reported by Elena Neal Sachs and Isabella Bloom. It was originally edited by me and Ethan Tovin Lindsay. The Code Switch version was edited by Leah Danella and produced by Kumari Devarajan. Thanks also to Erica Aguilar, Anna Sussman, Corey Suzuki, Gracelyn West, Sophie Codner, Stephen Rascon, and the UC Berkeley Graduate School of Journalism. And a shout out to the rest of the Code Switch familia, Karen Grigsby-Bates, Jess Kung, Alyssa Jung-Perry, Christina Kala, Dalia Mortada, Summer Tomad, Diba Motasham, Steve Drummond, Jean Demby, and B.A. Parker. I'm Shireen Marisol Miraji. Peace. Peace.